Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and tonight is a special night because this is going to be a debate. And we've only done a few of those on Trinity Radio, but I'm so excited. And I'm excited for the people that are going to be here with me debating this issue. On your left, you see David Pullman. Some of you may recall that he was just an interview on our episode just uh, just this past week and uh, is a student at the school that I'm at and uh, just a, a bibliophile and uh, debating beast on theological issues and uh, on uh, philosophical issues that come up in the world of apologetics. And so I'm excited to have him back. David, welcome to the show. And over here we have Godless Engineer, John Gleason. And Godless Engineer is um, was one of the first atheist response videos I ever made was to Godless Engineer. And he reached out to me in the chat. And we've had a, um, I think, a friendly adversarial relationship since then. And I'm so glad that you're here with us. John, welcome to the show. Guys, thanks for showing up today. Thanks for having me back. Hey. No, I kind of left it where you both have to talk the at the same place. time, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I am really glad to have you guys here. John, uh, do you feel like you're um, a lion among the lambs or something here? What's How do you feel? I mean, I do kind of feel like Daniel in the lion's den, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, but but I mean, I'm perfectly fine with that. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to be here on, on Trinity Radio because, you know, I catch – uh, you know, your, your live shows on occasion. I, I know, um, uh, who's, uh, who's your co-host there, Braxton, Jonathan um, Pritchett, Jonathan Pritchett. He, he definitely likes me. Cause whenever I, I remember one time when, when y'all responded to one of my videos or y'all were talking about one of my videos, he got up really close in the, in the camera and is like, what's up y'all. And <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> he does do that every time. David, you feeling good tonight? I am doing well. I just hope I don't let everyone down after that that buildup you gave me at the beginning there. We're all hoping that too, David, but let's get right into it. And so, uh, no, I know you guys are both going to do a good job. Let's get into it, and we'll do some Q&A. At the end, what's going to happen tonight is we're going to have 12-minute uh, opening statements from David and then from Godless Engineer. And then after that, we're going to move into 45 minutes of open discussion very uh, informal, but I'll be around in the background. And then after that, we'll get to your questions. They'll have a brief time to make some closing statements. We'll get to your questions, though. So uh, go ahead and, and be submitting those. I'll be watching for those. But uh, I'm excited about this. We're going to talk about did Jesus rise bodily from the dead? And hopefully we can get to an answer about that tonight. I'm ready to get to an answer about that. So I'm going to open with the person making the affirmative statement here, and that's David Pullman. So, David, we'll go to your PowerPoint, and your time will start when you speak. Awesome. All right. Uh, so in this debate, I am defending the proposition that Jesus of Nazareth 
uh, rose from the dead and will be granting or assuming the existence of Jesus for the purposes of this debate. Uh, this doctrine is the linchpin upon which the entire Christian faith depends, and as such, it merits careful attention from both Christians and skeptics of the faith alike. Uh, next slide. I will use four ancient sources which testify to Jesus' resurrection to make my case, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If we have good reasons to believe that these sources, or if we have good reasons to believe these sources, then we have good reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, next slide. Before digging into the specifics, I think it'll be helpful if I give a broad overview of the argument which I'll be defending. Uh, so premise one, there is testimony saying that Jesus was resurrected. Premise two, this testimony comes from credible sources. Premise three, there are only three logical possibilities with respect to credible testimony. Either it is true, it's deliberately false, or it's honestly mistaken. Premise four, the credible testimony for the resurrection of Jesus is not deliberately false. Premise five, the credible testimony for the resurrection of Jesus is not honestly mistaken. Premise six, therefore the credible testimony for the resurrection of Jesus is true. Premise seven, if the credible testimony for the resurrection of Jesus is true, then Jesus was resurrected. Conclusion, therefore Jesus was resurrected. Now I take one and three to be fairly uncontroversial and six simply follows from one through five. Seven is true by definition and eight follows from six and seven. So I think that the most controversial premises in this argument are two, four, and five. Consequently, I'll spend most of my opening defending them. So let's begin with that uh, second premise. I'll be defining the term credible sources technically. I understand this to be a source from someone who's in a good position to know if some event happened by either witnessing it or hearing about it directly from someone who did. The importance of this premise is that it disallows the skeptic from positing that the Gospels come to us at the end of a long, evolving, ever more legendary oral tradition. If the Gospels come to us directly from eyewitnesses or their immediate followers, then this forces the skeptic into the trilemma stated in the third premise. Inasmuch as I fully expect this to be the most controversial premise in this debate, I'm going to uh, ded dedicate quite a bit of space to defending the proposition that our four Gospels are indeed written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Next slide. Perhaps the most obvious evidence for the traditional authorship uh, comes from the very titles which these documents unanimously have in virtually all extant copies where a title is present. Without exception, they are titled as the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. While my opponent has said in the past that the Gospels were written anonymously and didn't have their current titles until much later, there is in fact no evidence to support this claim. We possess no anonymous copies. And this theory is implausible since as soon as more than one gospel was written, the early Christians would need some way to tell them apart. Next slide. Uh, as Dr. Brant Petrie says, to suggest that no titles whatsoever were added to the gospels until the late second century AD completely fails to take into account the fact that multiple gospels were already circulating before Luke ever set pen to papyrus and that there would be a practical need to identify these books. Next slide. This point is felt even more sharply when we compare the Gospels to the truly anonymous book of Hebrews, which in various manuscripts and ancient sources, we find attributed to no one, to Paul, to Timothy, and to Luke. Hebrews provides a test case of what we should expect a genuinely anonymous source to look like. We possess anonymous copies and find disagreement over the authorship. This is not the case when it comes to the Gospels. Despite these considerations, it might be objected that the authors of the Gospels do not identify themselves within the text. This much is true, but the Gospels are not unique in this regard. Many ancient historians do not identify themselves within their own writings, but are only known through external sources. Uh, Tacitus and Plutarch are prominent examples. 
And in the case of the Gospels, we have strong external attestation to their authorship. Uh, next slide. So uh, Matthew's identified as the author which uh, bears his name by Papias, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Origen. John is identified as the author of the Gospel which bears his name by Papias, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Origen. Luke is identified as the author of the Gospel which bears his name by Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Origen. Mark is identified as the author of the Gospel which bears his name by possibly Papias, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. Mark is almost always identified as having the Apostle Peter as his source. Now, there's much more attestation to the traditional authorship, which I could bring forward, but it's either from anonymous sources or third century or later. And in any case, I think that we got enough testimony here to make a strong case for the traditional authorship. Next slide. It cannot be overstated that these men were spread over a wide geographical space, making it unlikely that they're all pulling from a common source. Their independence is further seen in the fact that there are some apparent contradictions between them with respect to when the Gospels were written and possibly the order in which they were written. Some explanation is needed for the unanimous voice with which the ancient church names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the author of these Gospels. I propose that the best explanation is that they were telling the truth. These sources are also very close to the writing of the Gospels by people who would have likely known the Apostles themselves or those who did. Papias is especially important because his testimony dates to the early 2nd century at the latest, and possibly as early as the 1st century. Papias himself tells us that he was careful in how he got his information, that he inquired into the teachings of the apostles in particular. Moreover, he probably knew the apostle John, and therefore would have been ideally placed to know if John wrote the gospel, which is attributed to him. Uh, next slide. Monty Shanks says, 12 different fragrant, uh, fragments from 10 different authors claimed that Papias had, uh, to some degree personally known the Apostle John. It is recognized that some of these authors depended upon others for their knowledge of Papias's connection to the Apostle. Nevertheless, some of the more credible witnesses of the Apostle John's mentoring of Papias are Irenaeus, Eusebius, Jerome, and uh, Anastasius of Sinai. The only person that questioned Papias's association with the Apostle was Eusebius, who later in his life unashamedly and unjustifiably displayed gross prejudice towards Papias. I also want to draw attention to Justin Martyr, who in an early source, uh, and who's, who is an early source, and whose reference to the gospel provides indirect support for the traditional authorship. For although he does not mention the author of the gospels by name, he says that they were delivered to the Christians uh, by Jesus's apostles and their followers. Next slide. Uh, C.E. Hill points out that Justin's use of the plurals here would seem to mean that he acknowledged at least four Gospels, at least two written by apostles, and at least two by followers of the apostles. This matches up well with the hypothesis of traditional authorship, since Matthew and John would have been apostles, and Mark and Luke would have been followers of Peter and Paul. In passing, it's worth noting that there seems to be very little motivation for inventing Mark and Luke as the authors of these Gospels. Uh, because neither of them would have been an eyewitness, and neither of them was particularly prominent in the early church. Next slide. Craig Blomberg argues, it is hard to believe that the oldest traditions would uniformly associate the first two Gospels with Mark and Luke without some good historical reason, because neither was otherwise viewed as a significant figure in first century Christianity. Indeed, Mark in particular was known for abandoning Paul on one of his missionary journeys. Matthew, whose Gospel is the most Jewish in style, would also be an odd choice to invent as being the author. This is because Matthew was identified as a tax collector for the Romans within the gospel, and the Jews were not fond of these individuals. 
So it would be strange and counterproductive to invent him as being the author of a gospel which is directed towards predominantly Jewish audience. This evidence is all easily explained if we posit that the synoptic gospels are attributed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke because these men really were the authors. It's very difficult to imagine why these names were selected if they did not belong to the authors of these documents. Next slide. In sum, we have every reason for believing that the Gospels come either firsthand or secondhand from those who were in a good position to know what they were talking about. All of the available evidence supports the traditional authorship of these documents. All of these sources attest to the resurrection of Jesus. So when credible sources give us information, we have but three options. The information is true, it's deliberately false, or it's honestly mistaken. I'll now seek to show that the testimony bearing on the resurrection is not plausibly deliberately false, nor is it plausibly honestly mistaken. Next slide. Against the idea that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were deliberately lying, I will urge two points. First, it seems that they had nothing to gain by lying about this. There is no obvious benefit to be gained by deliberately misleading people into believing that Jesus had been resurrected. Second, there appears to be every reason not to lie about something like this. We know that the early Christians faced intense persecution at the hands of the Romans. We know this both from the early Christian literature, such as Paul's letters, Acts, Hebrews, and Clement, as well as from secular writings from the time, uh, such as the Roman historian Tacitus. We know that, generally speaking, one of the strongest human desires is self-preservation. Self so if the disciples really believed that Jesus was resurrected and that this ensured them eternal life, then their willingness to die for this belief is easy to explain. On the other hand, if they were deliberately lying, it's very hard to explain their willingness to die. Just on balance, the evidence is strongly opposed to the idea that the witness to the resurrection uh, is, is, is a lie. Uh, next slide. So if they weren't lying, then perhaps they were just honestly mistaken. It's a bit trickier to argue against this point since a more detailed account is needed to explain precisely how the disciples were mistaken. But here I'm going to focus on the most popular class of such explanations, which posit that the disciples were honestly mistaken as a result of purely psychological factors, such as expectation, hallucination, groupthink, cognitive dissonance, or grief. Against this thesis that the disciples were honestly mistaken on purely psychological grounds, I urge two points. First, the empty tomb. To the extent that we are going to posit that the disciples were honestly mistaken, then we must accept that they at least genuinely believed their own reports contained in the Gospels. This means that we would have to accept their witness to the fact that Jesus' tomb was really empty. This physical evidence can't be explained by a purely psychological hypothesis. Of course, one could add the additional hypothesis that Jesus' body was stolen by some third party, but that increases the complexity of the hypothesis and lowers its intrinsic probability. The resurrection hypothesis provides a single and unified explanation of both the empty tomb and the disciples' genuine belief in the resurrection. Second, the details and multiplicity of witnesses to the resurrection uh, make purely psychological explanations of the disciples' genuine belief in the resurrection unlikely. In John, for example, we have reports that Jesus cooked fish for the disciples. It's strange credulity to think that uh, that sort of they all sort of made this up or that they all had the same hallucination or that they all agreed on something this specific as the result of a group thing. Moreover, one could also bring up one could also bring up the fact that the Apostle Paul's belief couldn't be explained via grief since he initially demonstrated hostility towards Christianity. In short, there just isn't a good explanation for how genuine but false belief in the resurrection might have arisen. 
So if we conclude that the witnesses to the, oh, sorry, final, final slide. So if we conclude that the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus are not lying and are not honestly mistaken, we have one option left. They were telling the truth. And if they were telling the truth, then this entails that Jesus was indeed resurrected from the dead. Consequently, I answer the debate question affirmatively. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead bodily. All right. Thanks so much, David and uh, John, that he came in at 10 seconds over time. So if you want to take 10 seconds over time, you go right ahead. But that was pretty good. And so, uh, John, we'll just go straight into yours if you're ready, and we'll start when you speak. Oh, you might be muted, John. John. Much. There you go. Yeah. Sorry about that. That's okay. okay. Start now. All right. Uh, so yes, today I am here to discuss why I think that Jesus bodily resurrected. Uh, there are a number of nuances to this. Sorry, next slide. I'll get used to that. <laughs> uh, there are certain nuances to this topic. Uh, specifically, there are two aspects I want to analyze. Uh, there is a mere belief in a bodily resurrection. Then there is an actual bodily resurrection. The difference between these two is quite simple. A mere belief in the bodily resurrection doesn't have to be based in reality. It also only needs evidence that this belief arose, which is much easier to prove. An actual bodily resurrection requires real historical evidence to argue for it. I don't believe this actually happened, given the evidence that we have. For the sake of this discussion, though, we're assuming that Jesus existed in history. So you can put down your pitchforks right now about that particular topic. Uh, next slide. So my case against the bodily resurrection analyzes three areas of the evidence. First, the prior likelihood of the resurrection. This will answer the questions of how likely resurrection is in the first place and how likely a belief in the resurrection would be to develop. Next, the Pauline evidence for the resurrection. Uh, Paul is our earliest recorded evidence of Jesus and how we know and how he knows about Jesus is vital to understanding how Jews thought about Jesus. Finally, we look at the gospel evidence. This will be the lightest section because I don't think the gospels are all that reliable, but I'll explain that a bit later. Uh, next slide. Uh, so first up is the prior likelihood of the resurrection. Next slide. Okay, so first, let's look at the prior likelihood for an actual bodily resurrection. Uh, there have been no other individuals or specifically savior figures to bodily resurrect. Other figures thought to have resurrected did not actually resurrect and most likely never were historical figures in the first place. These figures would include Inanas, Almoxis, Dionysus, Romulus, Osiris, and many more. All these figures were said to have bodily resurrected. A resurrected Romulus was said to have been seen by one of his closest friends on their way between cities. As for Osiris, Plutarch discusses how he bodily resurrected and returned back to Earth. Jesus seems to fit in, uh, fit right in with this set of dying and rising gods, and if that is the case, then Jesus being the only one to actually resurrect is extremely unlikely. That doesn't prove that he didn't, just that you would need strong evidence to overcome this fact. Next, the resurrection requires reality to operate fundamentally differently. In general, people do not bodily resurrect like this. We aren't talking about resuscitation, but being, uh, uh, but being dead for extended periods of time and then coming back to life. The bodily resurrection of anyone would require a suspension of reality for it to happen. 
the physics of reality would have to momentarily change in order for a resurrection to occur. Considering all this, Jesus' resurrection would be the single time in all of history that this event occurred. Again, this doesn't mean that it's impossible for Jesus to have resurrected. It just means it's extremely unlikely to have happened. Now, what about the likelihood of the mere belief arising? Well, for one thing, the Jews were accustomed to resurrections in their faith. We don't count these as actual resurrections like in the previous section because we don't have any evidence that these resurrections occurred except for the claims of the Old Testament. The books in which these resurrections appear are most likely not historical accounts. There are three resurrections the Jews would have known about, the widow's son in Zarephath, that's uh, 1 Kings 17, uh, 1 Kings 17, 17 to 22, the Shunammite's son, uh, 2 Kings 4, 18 to 37, uh, and the man thrown into Elisha's grave, uh, 2 Kings uh, 13, 20. Uh, so it's likely that the resurrection would have been easily accepted into popular belief. Uh, next slide. Uh, so next in the uh, prior likelihood um, of mere belief, uh, some Jews were definitely expecting a disgraced, dying, and resurrecting Messiah. Isaiah 49.7, Psalms 89.38-95, the suffering servant of Isaiah 52.53, Daniel 9, Psalm 22, the wisdom of Solomon 2.12-22, are all references to this in Scripture. If we look at Isaiah 49.7, we read, This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The rest of the passages communicate similar messages. This is actually a known thing in scholarship. Jason A. Staples, in his dissertation that he reworked into a book called The Idea of, Second, of Israel in Second Temple Judaism, says this, The oft-repeated dictum that there is no evidence for the concept of a suffering and dying anointed one or of a messianic uh, interpretation of the suffering servant in pre-Christian Judaism is therefore mistaken, to which Jason then cites two other biblical scholars who came to the same conclusions. It's completely unreasonable to say that no Jews were expecting the exact kind of Messiah that Jesus would eventually become. This greatly increases the likelihood that the mere belief would eventually arise. Furthermore, Paul seems to indicate that he identified this exact idea was already in the scriptures to begin with. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Romans 4, 23-25, Philemon 2, 5-11, all indicate this notion. If we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, we read, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The according to the scriptures part is seems to indicate that this idea is found in scriptures, and furthermore, that is where Paul learned about it. Some translations have in accordance with, but this is an attempt to indicate fulfilled prophecy. Paul mentions the scriptures so much because the scriptures are one of the primary sources for Paul. The Talmud can also give us insight into what Jews would accept about the Messiah. 
The Talmud contains a messianic interpretation of Isaiah uh, 52 to 53, the suffering servant passages. While the Talmud is dated much later, the fourth to, between the 4th and 6th century, uh, it's unreasonable to think that the Jews would invent a tradition that only seems to validate Christianity or Christian interpretation of the scriptures. If it did arise after Christianity, we would similarly expect an apologetic against Christians, but we don't find that. Uh, next slide, please. Finally, on the prior probability, we have the book of Daniel. We've already mentioned this earlier as to having passages that allude to the Messiah, but it also contains a timeline that would roughly place the Messiah as coming around the 30s AD. This prepared some of the Jews to construct a belief in the suffering, disgrace, dying, and resurrecting Messiah in the 30s AD. Um, if they were prepped for this belief, all it would take is just claiming that uh, this had happened in one way or another for people to accept it, which coincidentally would be what Peter uh, started as well as other apostles, including uh, Paul. Considering all this, it's highly unlikely that a mere belief in uh, it's highly likely that a mere belief in a dying and rising savior would develop in the Jewish community. Uh, next slide. So next we're going to go over the Pauline evidence for the resurrection. First thing to consider with Paul's evidence is that he was a diaspora Jew. This means that he was not in a Jewish echo chamber. He ends up getting exposed to several different cultures. He began syncretizing these Hellenistic ideas with the Jewish religion, along with other Jews at the time, like Philo of Alexandria. Paul wrote in cooing Greek, which meant that he had to learn it at pagan schools. That means that Paul would have been exposed to those pagan traditions that we mentioned earlier, specifically the dying and rising gods we mentioned. Now, what did Paul think about Christ's resurrection? I do think that Paul considered Jesus to be bodily resurrected, primarily because Jews considered the heavens, hell, and angelic figures to be physical places and people. They thought of those angelic figures as real physical beings, just as uh, they just had the ability to live in the celestial realm too. This doesn't mean that I think Jesus actually bodily resurrected, just that Paul believed that he was bodily resurrected, mainly because Paul only experienced Jesus through visions uh, or hallucinations, however you want to characterize that, and reading the scriptures. Galatians 1.11 uh, uh, Romans 10, 14 to 17, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 15, Romans 16, 25 to 26 all indicate this. Most notably, Galatians 1, 11 through 16 says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. For, uh, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in my Judaism beyond uh, many of my own age among my people. And and so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone. As you can see, Paul emphasizes that he didn't get his information from any historically existing person or eyewitness. He only trusted information either revealed to him by Jesus or he read from the scriptures. In Galatians 2, Paul establishes that the gospel he mined from the scriptures and his uh, visions 
was the same information that other apostles were spreading. So Paul was teaching the same stuff that Peter, who uh, uh, and and <clears throat> was teaching the same stuff that Peter and what would become the church was teaching about Jesus. Paul seems to only believe in the resurrection because he had revelations and read about it in the scriptures. Uh, next slide. Yep. So Paul's evidence has us asking these questions. If Jesus had actually bodily resurrected, why infer information about it from scriptures? Why not just refer to eyewitnesses? Why did Paul separate himself from any historical source? Why didn't Paul ever reference the disciples instead of only apostles? Historical events we know happened have sources, and authors documented these events never seem to distance themselves from those sources. Next slide. Yep. Gospel evidence. About 30 seconds. 30 seconds? I'll but you can take can a minute. Take a minute. Take a minute, John. Okay. <laughs> Take a minute. Okay. Uh, the gospel evidence is some of the least convincing evidence that you can present. The uh, gospel of Mark is really the only piece of evidence that you can include in the section because it's the only pseudo-independent evidence in the group. I call it pseudo-independent because Mark draws upon Paul's epistles for some of his gospel. There are certain things that Mark has Jesus arguing for that Paul described as being his personal opinion and not a command from the Lord. So Mark is definitely influenced by Paul, thus making it not truly independent. We know for a fact that other Gospels are based on Mark, uh, Mark's Gospel, either directly or indirectly. The biggest problem with the Gospels is the fact that they only ever cite scriptures as their evidence for the information they record. Paul does this too, which seems to indicate that either there were no eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Jesus or eyewitness accounts had little value. This is a big problem for the actual bodily resurrection of Christ. If we don't have any eyewitness accounts of his happening and only scriptural interpretation, that makes it far less likely that he was actually bodily resurrected. We only know that the Gospels, uh, we only know that the Gospels used Mark because of textual evidence that connects all Gospels together. If these were eyewitness accounts, they wouldn't need to copy off one another. If they were based on eyewitness accounts, then, then they, again, would need to copy from one another. We also cannot distinguish between historical fact and fiction in these accounts if any fact actually exists. There are many reasons to reject the Gospels as historical accounts, reasons like the lack of internally analyzing and addressing contradictions in the traditions, presence of the author and the work, the education level of the target audience, genre differences, authorial speculation, lesser degree of authorial license, interdependence between the Gospels, uh, miracles being the, the central to the story instead of at the fringe, and important events and people immediately disappear from the story. The Oxford Annotated Bible states neither the immediately um, sorry neither the evangelists nor their first readers engaged in historical analysis. Their uh, aim was to confirm the Christian faith, as uh, and they cite Luke one four and John twenty thirty one. Uh, scholars generally agree that the Gospels were written 40 to 60 years after the death of Jesus. They thus do not present eyewitness uh, or contemporary accounts of Jesus' life and teachings. The Gospels don't provide good historical information as an end cap. I do have summary, a summary of my case, but um, I can just, I, I guess I can just leave it at that. Go ahead, um, John. Just go ahead and fun. get it all out there. Let's, yeah. let's get it all out on the table. <laughs> just, go, just go on ahead. <laughs> okay. 
All right. So uh, in summary of my case, Jesus uh, most likely didn't bodily resurrect as the current evidence stands. Uh, the prior probability is too low to overcome the uh, underwhelming evidence that exists. Uh, many factors contribute to this low probability. Uh, the Jews were actively reinterpreting scriptures for information about the Messiah in the first century. Different groups of Jews came to similar conclusions about the Messiah, specifically uh, the Orthodox Jews coming to a two-savior idea and Paul's sect imagining one savior, both determining that the suffering servant from Isaiah was messianic. This shows that there was a pre-Christian idea that the Jewish Messiah would, would be disgraced, suffer, die, and resurrect. Ultimately, the evidence for the resurrection is just not good. Paul never cites a historical source for Jesus' resurrection and even emphasizes how he didn't use any historical sources. And the Gospels can't give us any good historical information because we can't determine what is historical fact from fiction, so they are useless uh, to a historical case for the resurrection. As we can see, Jesus' resurrection was a mere belief and not a historical event. And that will conclude my case. All right, guys, thanks for getting it all out on the table for us. And uh, at this point, what we'll do is we'll go into about 45 minutes of open dialogue. I'll pop in if it's absolutely necessary, but I think one of the cool things about this is just the back and forth that we're going to have. And so um, I'm going to go to that window now, and you guys can just feel free to uh, start. Maybe, um, I, I don't know, Paulman, do you want to come back on anything or uh, to start out with, maybe get the ball rolling? Sure, yeah. Um, so could I maybe ask why you think that the Gospels are not independent sources? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, it's been shown uh, in scholarship that, you know, the uh, that Mark was written first and then Matthew, uh, you know, used Mark in order to generate his Gospel. And then Luke seems to have used both Matthew and Mark to write his gospel. I don't subscribe to the Q document idea. Uh, I don't know if you do, uh, but I generally try not to just um, ad hoc fabricate sources just because it makes something easier or something like that. So I, I, I go with the, um, uh, I don't know what, what, I can't remember the name of the model that it is, but basically. Fair uh, hypothesis. Uh, the, yeah, fair, that, that's right. That's the word. <laughs> uh, that one. But also, it's it's also been shown that John also had access to all three of the Gospels. So pretty much Mark was written first, and then all of the subsequent Gospels used Mark in some fashion to create their Gospels. How has that been shown? Well, but because it's it's uh, quite simply um, the, the the simplest answer, like the simplest conclusion to come to, and by that I mean it's got the le least amount of ad hoc assumptions attached to it. Uh, like, uh, for instance, the verbatim phrases and sentences and sections that appear in both Matthew and Luke. Uh, the fact that uh, Luke prefers to use Matthew over Mark shows that Luke used Matthew in order to uh, create his account as well. Uh, but I mean, pretty much it's the verbatim, uh, you know, uh, passages in there that, uh, you know, are, are across all the gospels that uh, it's commonly called, you know, the synoptic problem. 
uh, yeah. how to solve that and everything. I, I agree that we have um, verbatim agreement in all three synoptic gospels. Uh, the question is why I think that the dependency begins with Mark, because verbatim agreement could be interpreted multiple different ways. You could also interpret this verbatim agreement uh, as any one of the gospels, any one of the synoptics being written first, and then the other ones pulling from that. I don't know why you would think that Mark is the first one to be written. Well, gener generally, um, uh, the, the reason why we say that Mark was uh, the first one to be written is because of allusions to the, you know, the, the uh, Jerusalem temple being destroyed in 70 AD. So we kind of place it at that point, but also because of the fact that it's the shortest gospel and uh, the, the one that's uh, written with uh, Jesus being, I guess, uh, closer to like an adoptionist kind of mindset. Whereas we find throughout the other gospels, you have an ever increasing like Christology uh, going on. So like Mar Mark has uh, sort of an, an adoptionist view uh, of Jesus. And then you got Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew being written first, uh, you know, reworks that and makes Jesus a little bit more, uh, powerful, a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he can, he can do more, um, you know, more powerful things. And then Luke also, he corrects some things uh, about Matthew and his gospel that, uh, you know, Luke feels like he get uh, Matthew gets wrong. And so, I mean, it's just the general progression of it and how the, the verbatim copies, uh, seem to line up is, is, how we place the gospels where they are. Do you think that Paul held a high Christology? I think Paul thought that, um, say I've always had a, a one particular idea of what it means for to, to have a high Christology. Um, I, uh, uh, because uh, what I, what I think that Paul thought was that Jesus was separate from God and uh, that Jesus was a different, being from God and uh, but that Jesus uh, when when Jesus appeared to Paul he was a divine or celestial figure at that point so uh, and okay. I'm, I'm not trying to throw any kind of mythicist ideas in here I'm just saying that when 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 Jesus appeared to Paul he was a a physical celestial like figure uh, because that's how they viewed the celestial realm at that point was it was a physical place. And so it was inhabited by physical beings and Jesus being a celestial figure, he would have been a physical being. So my, my point here though, is that if uh, we accept that Paul holds a relatively high Christology that seems to cast doubt on this uh, evolutionary idea in the gospels that we could say, okay, so this idea of a high Christology evolves over time. So therefore we can say that Mark is first on the basis of his supposedly having a low Christology. And then we can see that this like incrementally grows over time. If we agree with Richard Baucom that we can find high Christology in Paul and so that the highest Christology is essentially the earliest Christology, then I don't think that there can be an evolutionary argument based on Christology, assuming for the sake of argument that Mark has a lower Christology. I don't think that there can be an argument there that Mark is first. Um, I wouldn't uh, that seems that uh, so, sorry da sorry David uh, that seems no, no, rather good. arbitrary uh, it, it, that seems rather arbitrary and uh, ad hoc uh, I mean because uh, it just well you saying oh well that means that Mark can't have this low Christology I don't see any reason why Mark can't have a low Christology but but regardless I'm not, I'm, of all that 
I wasn't saying Mark couldn't have a low Christology. I was just saying that um, even granting for the sake of argument that he does, if we can find a high Christology in Paul, who I think we both agree predates Mark, then that's going to undercut the argument for saying that Mark is first based on his allegedly having a low Christology, because you can't make the argument that, well, look, high Christology evolved over time if we can find high Christology in Paul. That's the point. Uh, okay, well, I, I feel like all of this is, regardless of all of this, still doesn't mean that the Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts. Um, so, okay. uh, I, I mean, I feel like how, however you want to order the Gospels, I, I really feel like it doesn't really matter to the actual evidence. I feel like the evidence of the Gospels is that, uh, you know, for one thing I know that you disagree with is that they're anonymously written uh, but also the fact that they don't cite any historical sources. They they are totally different from other historical, uh, you know, writings at the time. Uh, you know, the, there's just, there's a lot of things about the Gospels that scream like fabrication, or at least, at, at least um, so, sort of like a, a, a mythic telling of 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 something and uh th th this is due to just how historians analyze texts like this um you know a lot uh from, from this particular section of my presentation i get a lot of it from matthew ferguson he wrote a, a great write-up on why historians consider the gospels to be anonymously written and not based on any kind of like historical idea uh, as far as them being uh, eyewitness accounts and, and things of that nature. And so, I mean, there's just all the hallmarks of, of fabricated uh, accounts rather than uh, historical accounts. So if, if there are, if there is any historical facts contained within the gospels, which I, I totally agree that it's possible for them to contain some historical ideas or facts, uh, I don't think that you can actually have a good methodology for sorting out which is which. I think that uh, any methodology you could come up with, uh, you can easily counter with, uh, you know, uh, any number of reasons as to why that doesn't necessarily mean that this particular portion is historical. Okay, so in my view, Matthew is going to be the first gospel written. And in my view, it's written by the Apostle Matthew. So I'm not really seeing a need for him to cite sources because he himself is going to be the source of um, the majority of the information in his gospel. Uh, so I, it's not like well, a I mean, he never him. names himself in the gospel. Well, I mean, he does if we uh, take um, the account of the calling of himself, uh, the calling of Matthew, if he's being, or are you saying he doesn't name himself as the author? Well, not not just that, but he also doesn't speak as if he's part of this of this group, or 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 that he's a follower of Jesus or anything like that. He speaks from a, like the entire gospel of Matthew is spoken from this third person kind third of person. view. He yeah. he. Yeah, yeah. He says they did this and they did that. He never like speaks from like a, a first person kind of view, like we would expect some kind of eyewitness or historical account. Uh, you know, uh, so unless you're I, suggesting that. Oh, go ahead. I, I think that's a little bit anachronistic because we know that people did write history in the third person back then. I mean, uh, Julius Caesar, the conquest of Gaul, it's entirely written in the third person, but I don't know of anyone who questions that Julius Caesar. Uh, wrote the conquest of Gaul. So, I mean, this is just, um, I think that this is an anachronistic objection. I don't think that it's anachronistic at all, uh, primarily because that's not the only reason why we think that it 
it is uh, like if that if that was the only reason why we thought that Matthew didn't write the Gospel of Matthew, then I could I could see an argument being made for that. But that's not the only reason why. I mean, the fact that Matthew never claims authorship within the Gospel is is very clear. And I know that you you ascribe to the whole titles uh, affixed to the Gospels as being always there, but we actually don't have any evidence of that. We don't have any evidence that they ever weren't. As far as we know, they always well, say that that's that's just an argument from silence, though, like a weak argument from silence, not a strong one. Uh, also, um, it 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 uh, have it having the titles affixed to the, the 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 gospels from the beginning doesn't explain why the gospel, like like between one gospel to another gospel, like one one version of God, of Matthew to another version of Matthew, the story is pretty pretty much stays the same of course there there can be changes or whatnot in between there but uh the actual titles we have records of the titles actually being titled differently not like they they credit somebody else with it but just the titles are formed differently on each one which seems to suggest that these titles were only affixed later on and they're not as like uh, uh solid as the actual gospel itself so it, it uh, every piece of evidence seems to point to the fact that the gospels were originally written anonymously anonymously but more than that each gospel was written to correct the previous gospels so it there would be no need for titles or anything like that it would just be the gospel of jesus which is actually what uh, i believe each gospel starts out with right so i, I have two points uh on that and you, you can respond to each of them or just one if you want um but on the first point you brought up there saying that you know uh they are they are always attributed to these individuals matthew mark luke and john even if it's not always the gospel according to matthew right uh, well, not it until the second like, century. Well, as far as we can tell from these manuscripts, uh, from every manuscript we have that has a title, um, with one possible exception for the Gospel of Matthew, but virtually every um, with virtually every um, manuscript that has a title, it's attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, even but if it's from, from the second century. On, well, so. Um, this, I think, is going to go back to the point I raised from Petrie, which is as soon as you had more than one gospel, you're going to need a way to tell them apart. So uh, as far as we can tell, mm -hmm. there was never I disagree a time with when that. they didn't have these titles. So you think that, okay, well, then what, what would you say to Petrie on that point? Well, I mean, I I would say that that assumes that there's this um, monolithic Christian group in the first century, don't you think? Like, it, like there's so. a monolithic, No then 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 uh, like so that the alternative is that there were several different christian groups each christian group would have their own gospel according to jesus and we have several different like stories that were not incorporated into the canon that uh, are part of these various different christian communities in the first century of course we only have records of the ones that won out being the pauline version of it there are some other versions uh, of of the Christian faith that exists that have different interpretations of things like uh, I believe uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity is a little bit different. They interpret things maybe a little bit differently. But um, uh, ba basically, you had all of these different groups, and so all of these groups they would have their own respective um, you know gospel traditions. They would have the gospel of Jesus, and so the, these individual groups. It's not like they had 
you know, these multiple versions of the gospels. They just had the gospel. And it wasn't until I, I believe Papias is the first one to ever mention uh, like multiple gospels even existing or being accepted, uh, you know, by the Christian community. And uh, he just sort of arbitrarily, uh, arbitrarily labels them. He even gets Matthew completely wrong. Because uh, he says that Matthew was originally written in uh, Hebrew, but it from all indications, uh, textually and, and physical evidence, or like textual evidence, and everything like that, that it, that couldn't be the case. So there was no Hebrew Matthew to originally exist. So that's um, uh, you, you know maybe that's another different gospel that was that was out there or something like that. But we know that that's not the Matthew that we have. We have a completely different Matthew than than Papias ascribes, and I mean, most biblical scholars would say that you know Papias is probably the least trustworthy trust uh, church father that you could you could cite for this particular uh, section. But as far as to what I, I would say to that one guy is that you know each community had their own gospels, uh, uh, their own gospel, and that it didn't occur until later that the the need to separate. Like which gospel are we talking? Which gospels? Which um, it wasn't okay. until the the Christian community started to become more monolithic that 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 was necessary. All right, I got, I got several thoughts on that. So first of all, this point of having multiple communities, you still need a way to um, identify the different gospels. I mean, we know this from second century when you have disputes over I, these well, other gospels. Da- they so, all sorry, have names. David, David I feel like I just, gospel. That, I, I'm well, just no, saying I that see, there, there, so, there are so ways I, of telling these. There, there were ways of telling these gospels apart, even um, even when you had them for different communities. So I, I don't think saying that there were other communities. In, well, I'm, but I mean, in the second the, century, I'm sorry. Like, like this, the, none of that occurred until the second. Like we don't have anything from like the first century and even up until the mid second century. So everything well, that you're talking about is, is occurring in in the mid second century and onward. Right. At what, that what point, in the Christianity. Century, when, when, when we get a look at that, when we get a look at what um, have these different communities with these different gospels look like, they still had ways of identifying these gospels and differentiating them from each other. I mean, that's the basis of the um, how the arguments proceeded. So there was still a way to differentiate the gospels, even when the different communities had their own gospels um as far as i feel like you didn't listen to what i said so let's i I feel like uh, john take some space and and say what ask your question or make your statement clearly and then david go ahead well yeah sorry i i didn't want to i didn't want to move past that particular part because i was afraid to to forget about it it's just that i feel like david you're not listening to what i said because what i said was there would be, you know, these individual communities, each community would have their own gospel. There would be no need to determine which gospel was coming from which. So you'd have, if one community came into contact with another community, they would understand that both of those communities would have their own respective gospels about Jesus. Uh, or, or if they didn't know that, then they would compare notes or whatever and be like, Oh, this is the, you know, this is their gospel, that this is our gospel. And we know this for a fact from like the non-commodity library and other, other discoveries like that, that there were these several Christian groups out there that just considered it to be uh, their particular gospel. So it wasn't until much later when Christianity became more monolithic than that, the need for uh, distinguishing which gospel was, which uh, is, is, is uh, was necessary. Okay, David. 
Yeah, so I'm not disagreeing that there were uh, other different kind of factions or even Christian groups uh, out there earlier. Uh, what I'm disagreeing with is that this implies that there wouldn't have been a practical need to tell these Gospels apart. Uh, I would like to press you a little bit on Hebrews. Um, so Hebrews is one I think we can agree is a, a genuinely anonymous um, document, right? Uh, why is it so different um, in the case of Hebrews than it is from our four canonical Gospels? Um, why is it that we get disagreement over um, the, or, uh, the, the epistle of the Hebrews? We have anonymous copies of it, and then we find it attributed to like four or five different people in the second century. Uh, when it comes to the Gospels, we get a unanimous testimony and we possess no anonymous copies. Um, you wait, I, I, I lost you on that last part. Unanimous what? Yeah. So why is it that in the case of Hebrews, we get, uh, we have anonymous copies and we did and disagreement over who authored it. Whereas in the case of the gospels, we get a unanimous testimony on who authored them and we have no anonymous copies. Well, I mean, uh, as far as unanimous testimony on who authored them, like I pointed out with Papias, he has a totally different Matthew. So I don't know what you mean by unanimous uh, agreement about, about who wrote what plus um, as far as the second century go uh, goes, uh, we don't actually have like which, which documents they considered to be, you know, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Like we don't, we, we don't have any, we might have some citations or something. I can't remember exactly, but the first indication that we get of all four of these gospels being considered the four gospels is Marcion in, uh, you know, the, the second century. So uh, like late second century. Um, before that, we do have people mentioning certain names, but not all four names together. And uh, so it kind of seems to me like in the second century, there was uh, this sort of period where they were trying to organize their ideas about these gospels. And it wasn't until Marcion just finally, you know, hit, you know, I, I guess hit his gavel or whatever, and decided which were the four, uh, and w w which were the four that were the official ones or whatever. Uh, but, uh, as far as, as far as like Hebrews goes, I, I don't know why we're comparing Hebrews to the gospels other than you're trying to suggest that if, if the gospels were truly anonymous, then they would look more like Hebrews. But uh, I just don't see, I, I see that as a non sequitur. I don't, I don't see the, the value in doing that. Uh, what we do know about the gospels is that, is that the internal evidence for the gospels, uh, we don't see any kind of indication of uh, authorship and external to the gospels. We only get uh, like claims of authorship uh, it, on into the second century. So, uh, I mean, while I, I can't uh, like while I can't say from direct evidence whether or not the titles were affixed there from the beginning because we don't have we don't have the original manuscripts, all of the information concerning the titles and the gospels and them being affixed to one another uh, seems to point away from the titles being there from the start because I feel like if they were there from the start, then they. It, w it would have been as um, solidly transcribed as the rest of the gospel was. And that's just not true because we have several uh, actual uh, 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 pieces of evidence where the titles are actually 
constructed in different ways. And so, I mean, it, that seems to suggest that it was a little bit more lenient with the titles, which suggests that, you know, that they were transfixed later by scribes. And this isn't my opinion, by the way, like I'm not just coming up with this. I'm not pulling it out of my butt or anything like that. This is, you know, coming from textual critics like Bart Ehrman, as well as uh, the wider uh, biblical scholar community. Yeah, I wasn't uh, disagreeing that you have some differences in how the titles are worded. The, the point is that on who the authors are, that's there's complete agreement on that. And so the point I was just making is that that doesn't look like uh, that doesn't match up well with what we know about anonymous documents, anonymous known anonymous documents such as Hebrews uh, have a very different pedigree than um, the Gospels. As far as Papias goes, um, I'm curious if you're at all familiar with uh, scholars like Robert Gundry, Bernard Orchard, uh, Jay Kurtzinger, uh, who've argued that um, this is actually a misunderstanding of Papias, that he's not um, saying that uh, this is a Hebrew language that uh, Matthew wrote in, but that it's actually should be best understood as saying that uh, Matthew wrote in a Hebrew style. Uh, are you familiar with that at all? I mean, I'm I'm not uh, intimately familiar with it, but it just seems to be like an ad hoc explanation without any kind of evidence to suggest it. Uh, well, they, and, I mean, they they argue I would, for it. I would on the think that it's it. Well, I would think that that would what that would be a a, a very um, small minority of people that would probably uh, appeal to that, right? Uh, it's not the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I think probably more scholars than not than I read think that Papias is saying Hebrew, uh, think that Papias is saying Hebrew language here. But most of them, I don't see them interact with the arguments that people like Gundry and Orchard and Kurtzinger give for understanding Papias is saying Hebrew style here. Uh, my only point was there is that it's less than cut and dried that Papias is in fact saying that um Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. I don't think it's a big deal, even if he was. Um, but uh, I was just saying that that's not completely certain, actually, from the text of Papias. It could be saying Hebrew style. And I just don't think it's controversial that our Gospel of Matthew is the most Hebrew in style. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a textual critic or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, no, no, yeah, that's fair. Really I, I was just saying, if if, if if those scholars are correct, then do you think that that would um, at any rate perhaps make you view Papias in a better light if he's not saying that Matthew was written in the Hebrew language? Well, no, uh, because I mean, like with, with Papias, it's not that like that's that's just one aspect of Papias that's really sus. Like, for instance, Papias normally uh, attributes a lot of his uh, stuff as coming from this elder John, who we have no mm -hmm. idea who it is. For all we know, it could just be some made up person that he affixed to his information to make it seem more credible. But Papias is also known to pass off uh, hearsay as being just fact. Uh, one example of this is the death of Judas. Uh, do you recall what Papias says about the death of Judas? Yeah, yeah, it gives this. I actually laughed the first time I read it. Um, Maybe for the audience who isn't um, familiar with it, there's this interesting um, description that we get of Judas um, in, uh, it's attributed to Papias. Uh, we actually have it in two sources, uh, to my understanding, and they actually quote him differently. So we're not completely sure what Papias actually said, but he basically says that, in one source, it just says that Judas's um, 
really fat and that he was uh, lacked hygiene. The other one says that, but then it like also says that like his genitals like grew really huge and like he would pee out like um, like bugs and uh, pus and stuff. Maggots. So it like exaggerates it more and more. And so, yeah, yeah, the argument that people like Richard Carrier and such have made is that. So this means that Papias is not reliable. Uh, I think it's important. We well, don't have no, no, no. I, I'm sorry. Can I can I stop you right there? Because that's not yeah, a yeah, Richard Carrier argument. It's not a Richard Carrier argument. That's a bar. I mean, that's what Bar Ehrman says, like in in his book. Yeah, I believe it's uh, J- J- Jesus interrupted Jesus before the Gospels. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I I thought it might have uh, might have occurred in Jesus interrupted too. It, I mean, it might I be. In, it might people. be in that one as well. Yeah. So, but my, my point is, is that Papias isn't the most reliable. And uh, I do think that you have to take a critical look at what Papias says. But as far as I understand it, Papias is seen as the least, um, the, the, the least trustworthy early church father. Uh, so, I mean, uh, but, but still, I, I want to, I want to circle back around to this whole bodily resurrection thing. Cause we've been really harping on like the gospels, which I know that you place a lot of emphasis on. And I, didn't put a lot of emphasis on uh but uh, i mean i get that you think that the uh, that people that um uh, witnessed these things happen uh wrote the gospels but mm-hmm. i don't think that there's there's good evidence like at all in the gospels or in paul's work which paul actually wrote before the gospels uh, were written there's nothing in there that actually uh can be shown to be a historical source for the resurrection. Uh, even the resurrection accounts in the gospels themselves differ uh, wildly. And so it, it kind of seems like for each author, they had a different, uh, a different reason to change each, you know, resurrection story in order to, uh, you know, prolong it. Each, each gospel prolongs this uh, resurrect the period after the resurrection and what, and what, uh, what Jesus did. So, uh, you know, uh, the, regardless the uh, of, of the gospel, like, I guess, authorship aside, I still think that there was just a mere belief in these things that occurred. And I'm wondering if you can differentiate between just the mere belief arising and the it actually happening. Okay, so um, three points on that. So uh, first of all, when it comes to um, just just to finish off the point about uh, Papias and Judas, uh, as I said, we do have two different quotations of Papias on that point. One of them is not quite as exaggerated as the other one. So we don't actually know what Papias um, said about Judas in that case. Uh, as far as his source there goes, it's pretty clear he's just um, putting a rumor that came out about Judas forward. He's not necessarily saying that this is actually what happened. Uh, whereas in the case of the Gospels, like he's saying that he got this information from uh, the Presbyter John, who I would argue is the Apostle John. In fact, nobody questioned that until Eusebius. Uh, on the topic of the Gospels, um, giving us different accounts of Jesus' uh, resurrection, uh, and, and saying that they add more, well, that, that I think presupposes that Mark is the first one written. Uh, if the chronology that I would propose is that it's Matthew first, then Luke, then Mark. So I don't think we actually have this gradual um, evolution. And, you know, we don't have to get all the way into the synoptic problem. But suffice to say, if one doesn't accept um, kind of that chronology of the synoptics, then we don't have this slow evolution, um, you know, growing there. 
And then the, the last thing that you had asked me, oh, sorry, I dropped, I, I forgot the last thing that you had brought up. Um, what, what was the last point that you had asked me about? Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so I, I just asked how, how would you distinguish a mere belief arising about uh, that, that Jesus bodily resurrected and an actual bodily resurrection? Because uh, even, even if uh, like, let, let, let's say that the people that actually, uh, you know, witnessed Jesus uh, was part of Jesus's ministry and everything like that on earth. Um, uh, you know, let, let's say that those people are the ones that, that, that wrote the gospels. I mean, uh, from what it seems to me, the earliest reference to Jesus is Paul and Paul only ever cites scripture and revelation as even knowing about these things. Um, and then, you, you know, you, you do have references to other, uh, uh like rather unknown gospels, like I believe uh, Ignatius in the second century refers to a gospel where Jesus just appears as this bright uh, star in the sky and nobody knew about his uh, suffering and death and, and everything like that until he resurrected later. And Paul even gives us this indication that nobody knew about, you know, Jesus until Jesus was like revealed to people. Um, as far as like, not, not Jesus, the historical figure, but Jesus, the, the, you know, the resurrected Jesus, uh, nobody was, uh, nobody knew about it until, uh, revelation or, or, uh, these apostles read the scriptures and, and found the resurrection of Jesus in the scriptures. So, um, it seems to me like mere belief is, is far more likely than actual bodily resurrection. Uh, so I'm sorry. I know I'm taking a long time to answer what you asked. I'm so sorry about that. Just differentiate between mere belief arising and actual bodily resurrection. Yeah, I think you got to look at the reasons that the people who even it give for it. Um, and so, I mean, uh, in some cases, it could have been mere belief, right? But in the case of the uh, witnesses that I'm interested in, which is particularly going to be the the authors of the Gospels, the reason that they believe, the stated reason for why they believe, is these experiences that they have of the resurrected Jesus. And so um, I think when we take a look at the details of these accounts in the Gospels, these are not the sorts of things that can be explained away as um, being hallucinations or um, uh, you know, legendary development. And so if those sorts of things are ruled out, then I would say, okay, so this is not mere belief, then this is mere belief accompanied by an experience, which is corroborated by multiple sources. So that, that's how I would differentiate between a mere belief. Uh, as I would say, well, this belief is accompanied by a veridical experience of the risen Christ. Well, so I would push back on the whole multiple sources thing, because like, uh, I, I mean, I hate to keep going back to the gospels, but I know so much of your case rests on the gospels relaying like accurate historical information. Uh, but the, I mean, I, I don't understand why you would consider all four gospels to be independent of each other when we know that in, in, in some form or, or in, in some arrangement or another one copied from another and so on yeah. and so forth. So there was regardless of who you want to put first, which I, I, you know, have a problem with Matthew being first, but regardless of that, there was a gospel that was first written and then somebody else wrote a gospel and copied from that gospel. And then somebody else wrote a gospel and copied from the previous two gospels. And then the last gospel, which I think we would probably both agree is John, uh, that one copied from all three gospels. 
or at least was influenced by all three gospels when he wrote his. And so when we're looking at historical sourcing, like when, when you see historians do uh, source, uh, source criticism, uh, if you, if you have one source and then you have another source written later that uses that previous source, you don't have two sources. You just have one source. So, so you can't say that the four I, gospels are four independent accounts because you know, they, they all stem off of one gospel. So I want to make a distinction between literary dependence and uh, source dependence. So it is possible to have literary dependence without source dependence. So I acknowledge literary dependence among the uh, three synoptic gospels, but each synoptic gospel also has independent information that is not found in the other ones. And that information still has to be explained, right? So in my view, Matthew's going to be the first one written. His information comes from him being an eyewitness. Luke's going to be the next one written. Luke is not an eyewitness. What does he say in the preface of his, uh, or in the prologue uh, of his gospel? He says that he uh, got his information from eyewitnesses. It makes sense that he would use Matthew in that case, then, if Matthew is an eyewitness. Uh, in fact, if we can independently justify the idea that Matthew is an eyewitness, as I think we can, then that gives us reason to believe Luke when he says that he's getting his information from eyewitnesses. As it pertains to the resurrection of Jesus, he is not dependent on Matthew. So if we can justify that he got his information from eyewitnesses in the case of Matthew, then I think we have good reason for thinking that he also probably got his information from eyewitnesses when it comes to the resurrection, both because that's what he says and that because of uh, his known dependence on Matthew. In the case of Mark, I think we can justify that Mark got his information um, from Peter, and he also obviously you know, uses both um, Matthew and Luke, um, which, I, again, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, John is not literarily dependent on any of them. He may have known them, possibly not. Um, you know, there's debate about that, but we don't have verbatim agreements in John. So John is clearly independent of the um, of the synoptics. Hey, real quick, uh, guys, before, before you come back on that, John, uh, I just wanted to say we've got 10 minutes until we're going to go to some closing statements and then audience Q&A. Um, and I know that the Gospels, the issue of the Gospels, is obviously vitally important to this whole discussion. Um, and so, but if there's anything else that we need to work in here to make the case or against the case for the resurrection, I just want to say this is the 10 minutes to do it in. We, we can let John bring up an issue because I originally kicked us off on the Gospels. And so I want him to have a chance to, you know, press me on some issues that maybe he wanted to raise. Uh, right. Well, well, it, it's kind of, uh, there, there's, uh, you know, we, we, we have spent the most of the time discussing the gospels and I, I would, um, I would love to know how you actually it, uh, can substantiate that John didn't use the other gospels when it's very obvious that John, uh, reified, uh, Matt, uh Luke's Lazarus into actual history. Uh, I wonder, I wonder how you explain that, but may, maybe we can touch on that, uh, some other time. Um, but uh, so in, 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 in my view of it, you know, Paul and the gospels, cause, cause you say that the gospels, uh, uh, could have, could have had these independent sources behind them or whatnot, which uh, honestly just kind of seems like ad hoc, you know, claims to, to things. But, uh, it seems to me like the common source for all of it is the scriptures. Um, like I uh, have in, in my, in my presentation, um, you know, you've got Paul, uh, all over the place claiming that scriptures are where he finds that 
Christ died uh, for sins and that he resurrected. Those are the specifically Paul cites the scriptures as where he learned those things. And then you, in the gospels, uh, especially Matthew, you have references to scriptures everywhere saying that, Oh, Jesus did this because the scripture said this. And so it seems like the ultimate source, however you go about it, are, are the scriptures. So that seems to lead me in the direction wow. of, well, the scriptures are the ultimate source. And so if, if people were reinterpreting the scriptures like we know them to be uh, doing, uh, then that prepped people for the mere belief arising. Then it just takes somebody like Peter claiming that Jesus resurrected and, and came to him in a vision for people to start believing in this thing. Um and I'm just kind of curious, other than you thinking that the apostles writing the Gospels, or the, the disciples, rather, uh, writing the Gospels, um, what do you have any other evidence that would say that it's more likely Jesus resurrected bodily from the dead uh, over the mere belief arising? Like, is, there, is there any other evidence that you have? Yeah, um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to kind of get into a lot of the positive reasons that I have for um, believing the Gospels. But I mean, yeah, I would I would uh, adduce things like undesigned coincidences and unexplained illusions. Uh, but here's one that I think is relevant to um, your the point that you just raised. And this would be the argument from awkwardly fulfilled prophecies. So you point out that Matthew, for example, I mean, it's clearly part of his purpose, right, to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And he uses the scriptures a lot to do this. The issue is that he seems to force things a lot, right? Like he like has to force um, uh, the scripture. Like I called my son out of Egypt, which doesn't seem prophetic at all, right? Like in the, the original context in the Old Testament, this is talking about um, the Jews coming out of Egypt. And yet Matthew like takes that and like tries to say that this is predicting um, Jesus coming out of Egypt. So I, I'm just curious what... what, what it seems to me that this argues for the actuality of that event having happened, because otherwise, why would he be trying to like scour the Old Testament to find some reference that he could like plug in here? Well, so um, Matthew's uh, gospel, uh, one of the things that it tries to do is it tries to present Jesus as this new Moses. And so that's why you have so many calls to Egypt and so many interpretations of scripture and interpretations that seem to do the things that, that, that you're thinking about that Matthew's community saw Jesus as the new Moses on, on top of like the new Elijah, the new Elisha and all this other stuff. Um, well, you know, obviously John was either, I think it was, I think John was Elisha. Anyways, one of the two, but in any case, um, you know, Matthew's gospel sees Jesus as the new Moses. So they're trying to present him as the new Moses. So they make these allusions back to Moses's story. Uh, that's why, like, for instance, in Matthew's gospel, you have uh, Jesus's family after uh, uh, Jesus's birth you know, they have to flee to Egypt. And this is because of Herod that want, who wants to kill all the Jewish children. They, they flee to Egypt. And this is similar in fashion to what happens with Moses. Uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt is wanting to kill all the Jewish children because of a prophecy that he heard. And so Moses's mom puts him in a wicker basket, sends him down the river. And, uh, he, Moses just ends up in Egypt anyways. Uh, you know, uh, 
being part of the royal family, actually. And so, I mean, they're trying to mirror that with with Jesus there. Um, and, and it's all done to make Jesus look like a, a the new Moses. Okay, so your explanation, awkwardly fulfilled prophecy, is to be explained by recourse to this kind of... Um, Moses archetype that, that's how you'd uh, answer that argument well I mean I think I feel like it's very obvious in the Matthew gospel that he's figured as you know the new Moses I mean I don't really think that that's controversial so yeah okay. I mean that's how I would explain their interpretation of scripture is that they see him as the new Moses okay I'd have to think about that uh, that answer on that uh, particular one, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think other uh, evidences for the uh, internal uh, or internal evidence for the um, reliability of the gospels comes again from undesigned coincidences and uh, unexplained illusions and things like that. And again, I didn't want this to be. Do, do you too- well? So on on, I know I figured that undesigned coincidences might come up, but. I'm I'm wondering, can, do you understand why I wouldn't find that compelling, like the undesigned coincidences, considering how I view the gospel's development? Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, so I'm not sure if I've heard you in particular explain um, kind of your understanding of undesigned coincidences. Okay. Well, well, I mean, so basically, if it, regardless of which gospel was first, we're, we can disagree on that. But you got one gospel that's written, and then you got another gospel that uses that gospel to write its story. I mean, you can't say that there are undesigned coincidences between the two, because obviously the second person that copied from the first person is going to construct their narrative in order to fit like a puzzle into that narrative like they're going to explain some different things they're going to say some different things but they're going to make sure that you know it's it's still somewhat cohesive because they're copying from that first person and then you bring in the third person who's going to have to fit his puzzle piece in with the other two and so that makes these undesigned coincidences actually designed coincidences so i mean they're 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 planned out I think that misses the point that these are um, casual things, but I also think that that's in conflict with people who want to say that um, that the Gospels are contradicting themselves, right? If you're going to say, well, of course they're trying to make it cohesive, then um, you have sudden you suddenly have a problem if you want to, you know, press contradictions. I don't think you can have it both ways. Well, I don't think you can say that these are contradictory accounts written for different communities with different purposes that are trying to correct one another, while at the same time saying that, oh, well, they're paying attention to these very subtle details, and so they're going to make their gospel interlock with that. I think those are mutually incompatible um, positions to take on the gospels. Well, I don't, I don't think so because uh, when you have one author that is trying to correct another author, at that point they're not trying to, like, they're they're not trying to fit their puzzle piece into the other gospel. They're changing like the puzzle piece, right? And and that it, it, since we're using uh, puzzle pieces like uh, this. Um, abstract idea of what an undesigned coincidence is that they're changing their puzzle piece for, for that particular situation. But I mean, that doesn't describe like all like that, the, that doesn't describe all of the gospels or all the content of the gospels. There are times where they're trying to make, uh, you know, the information fit with what people already know about these things. So like one of the popular undesigned coincidences is, is uh, the feeding of the 5,000, right? Uh, talking about th- there's, there's different uh, uh, 
small details in each uh, gospel, but you know each gospel has in common this feeding of the five thousand. Uh, Mark has two feedings, uh, which are kind of awkward, but um, since each gospel is trying to have this same event happen, they're obviously going to recite information that seems to fit with these other gospels, or at least seem to mimic it. And so I, I feel like it, you know, these being actually designed coincidences is much more likely than this undesigned coincidence. And I don't think that that can, even if they were undesigned coincidences, I don't think that gets us back to eyewitnesses. Um, it, we're at about 45 minutes. Um, do you guys mm -hmm. want to take another few minutes on this or are you ready to go to closing statements? There's so much that we could hash out here. So I, I don't know if, if David has any, any more specific questions for me, I'm fine going to like sort of summarizing each of our cases, but I'll let, I'll leave that up to David. No, we can, well, we David, can move to the summary if you're all right with that. Okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put it uh full screen on uh Dave, I, I don't know who's, who should go first. There's no uh, bias in this choice. I'm just going to throw David up there. And David, you make your closing statements, and then we'll go to John, if everybody's okay with that. All right. Uh, yeah, so so I've, get, I've, I've told everyone they can have up to five minutes, so uh, bear that in mind. All right. Yeah, I don't have anything prepared in the way of a closing statement. Um, just to summarize, uh, some of the thoughts I have is uh, I do think that uh, we haven't seen any real evidence to think that the Gospels are or ever were anonymous. Uh, again, we can compare, we can use Hebrews as a test case. We can see what genuinely anonymous documents look like, and uh, that's just not what we have in the case of the Gospels. I think we have good reason for thinking that Matthew and John, at least, are eyewitness uh, accounts uh, and that Luke and Luke and Mark are very closely related uh, to them. Uh, as far as this point about uh, differentiating, uh, you know, just a belief from the resurrection actually happening. Again, the answer there is you look at the the reasons. You look at why why is this belief there? And uh, if we look at the Gospels, it's because there are these experiences of the bodily resurrected Christ. And so, if we take those seriously, as I as I have argued that we should, then. Uh, that's how we're very easily able to differentiate mere belief in the resurrection from uh, true belief in the resurrection. Uh, let's see, a few other points here. Um, yeah, I don't think that Jesus uh, is going to be analogous to things like Romulus and Osiris and Zalmoxis. Uh, we don't have any eyewitness accounts uh, that can be corroborated for uh, these particular individuals and their resurrections, even if I granted for the sake of argument that they were in any way analogous to the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't actually think that you can make the case that they are. But again, even if they were, they just don't have the quality of evidence that something like the resurrection of Jesus has for it. Uh, on the prior probability issue um, for uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, again, I feel like it's begging the question to say that this has never happened before um, because it, it you know, begs the question against a lot of you know, other resurrections uh, in the Bible and things like that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that we could put the uh, prior probability on that at near zero. It seems like from an agnostic point of view, we would just have to say that the prior probability on something like that is inscrutable. Certainly, we could say that it's rare and unlikely, so maybe we could put a lower prior probability on it. But uh, lower prior probabilities can always be overcome by sufficient evidence, which I think we have in the case of the Gospels. 
Uh, I don't think a miracle is going to require a suspension of reality. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it, it seems to assume that God is not part of reality uh, to the extent that we accept that he is, then uh, it wouldn't be correct to identify a miracle as a suspension of reality. Um, this other issue about the Gospels being based on one another, um, again, literary dependence uh, is compatible with source independence. All of the Gospels have uh, unique information to them. That's got to be explained somehow. Uh, and I don't see why that's ad hoc. We, we need an explanation for how they got this information. Uh, and I mean, again, in the case of Luke, he says this information is from eyewitnesses. Uh, Mark's unique information, granted, he doesn't really tell us where it's from, but um, if we take the early church um, Seriously, we uh, can see that these were people who were wanting the, the, the teachings of Peter from Mark. And so um, they would have known that Peter was the source behind this. And then Mark just later, uh, because of the, the Petrine authority there, uh, later got adopted into the Christian community at large. So uh, I think that it wasn't really necessary for him to identify his sources because, uh, it, again, if the church history is right on this, then the original recipients of Mark's gospel, they just knew that Peter was the source behind this information. Uh, I believe that John does identify himself later on in his gospel. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any case for anonymity there. Um, I think that's all I really got in the way of a, um, yeah, in the way of a, a concluding thoughts there. So I'll turn it over to John. All right. Thanks. And uh, John, we'll let you take your closing remarks now. Well, I really appreciate being invited on to Trinity radio here. And, uh, you know, like Braxton said at the very beginning, we've, we've had a, a very uh, uh, friendly uh, connection and uh, I'm, I'm so happy for that. Thank you so much for there, Braxton. Um, as, as far as, as my case uh, goes, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm still not convinced of, of the resurrection, obviously. Sorry to burst anybody's bubble that thought that I might come away as a Christian tonight. But um, I come at this from a very analytical point of view. Uh, and I look at the prior probability first, which what I said was that it's extremely unlikely, not that it's 0%, because I wouldn't choose 0% or impossible. Uh, I, I would say that it's extremely unlikely that Jesus would have bodily resurrected and that it's far more likely that a mere belief would have arisen. And then when, once we start looking at the evidence for that, all, all we find are scriptures and visions being referred to. And then, of course, the main topic of tonight was the Gospels, and uh, I don't consider them to be able to give us good information, uh, primarily because we don't know who wrote them. Uh, we don't have the original uh, uh texts uh, of these so we don't know how they were, were originally uh, circulated but what we do know is that the titles were affixed to them later and even the four gospels were only agreed upon by Marcion and so uh, uh, given, given all of that information it, it does not uh, counter react the prior probability for me. This information about uh, the Gospels, uh, I feel like cannot surpass the prior probability because the Gospels are based on the Scriptures. And uh, I get that we didn't have a lot of time to cover like undesigned coincidences or some of these finer um, uh, uh, topics, but I don't think that undesigned coincidences can get us to a bodily resurrection. I think that it can get us to mere belief arising. I feel like it can get us to this idea of 
the Jews were reinterpreting scripture in order to uh, create this new religion of Christianity um, in, in a way where a historical figure or, or not doesn't really matter. I mean, like I said, considering Jesus as a historical figure, taking some, some person who did die and then piling legends onto them based on the scriptures. I feel like that's far more likely than a bodily resurrection, but that's just coming at it from a strictly analytical uh, point of view of weighing the evidence that we actually have and uh, trying to reduce the ad hoc claims that are presented. I feel like m- my case for the mere belief arising has far less ad hoc uh, and arbitrary claims associated with my information. Um, so uh, I feel like it's probably the most likely one to be correct. Uh, and so I, I I didn't come here to convince anybody just to put forth a good case. I uh, don't know if I did that, but I appreciate being given the opportunity. So thank you, Braxton. Thank you, David. And I guess um, that'll be it for me. All right, guys. I really appreciate that. That was fun. It wasn't boring. Sometimes debates can be boring. It was informative. I feel like I learned something. And so thanks, guys. We'll go on to uh, questions now. I have uh, quite a few here. Uh, We'll start with Super Chats. That's Pritchett's rules, not mine. Israel says, uh, thank you for that Super Chat. Um, Let's see. Moderate David to the W Brax. Uh, I don't know what that means. Uh, Uh, Moderate him to the win. I think. Oh, oh, I see. Help him with my moderation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. David is radiating masculinity, masculinity right now. John two. Well, praise the I Lord. I like how I guess I'm, you're I'm not, Braxton. What, John? <laughs> What'd you say, John? Oh, I, I was just saying, I like how I'm an afterthought. I'm sorry. I didn't even think about Braxton not even being included in that. I'm sorry. I hey, that's, <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's clear who the, who the eye candy is here tonight. He prefers okay, men with um, hair. <clears throat> And another one in that vein, some people watch debates to hear the two sides argue. I'm here for Braxton's moderate moderator skills. Well, you came to the wrong place. And one more funny one before we get to seriousness. Jonathan Pritchett says, I'm a godless engineer fan. If he ever converts to Christianity, he has a second career as a fundamentalist preacher in rural Alabama. So uh, there you go. All right. On to the to the interesting stuff here. Okay, Matthew repeats about 91% of Mark word for word in his gospel. It makes up just over 40% of the material in Matthew. Doesn't this point to Mark preceding Matthew, David? I don't really see how. I would need to kind of see why it is that um, having, you know, that much um, of the same material in some way indicates that... Um, Mark is the first one written, but I will say that um, that number is uh, that's actually one of the higher estimates that I've seen for uh, how much of the material is shared between or or really is just in uh, is in Mark from Matthew. Um, I've seen uh, very disparate estimates on that. So, like, for example, one book I have here, right, the progressive publication of Matthew by Ward Powers, he estimates that um, the unique material in Mark is 25% of uh, Mark is not shared in Luke or um, or Matthew, depending on um, how you kind of run the numbers. So 
Uh, some people do it like by pericope, some people do it by words. So there's different ways you can count the shared material. Uh, so by the way he does it, he gets to a number that 25% of um, Mark is unique to him. So, uh, you know, I, I haven't run the numbers myself. I'm not sure who's right on that debate, but fundamentally I would just say, I don't see, the, I don't see any way to, infer, or any way to infer priority from the amount of or percentage of shared material. Um, I would need to see uh, further premises to get to that conclusion. John, you want to come back on that at all? Well, I mean, personally, I feel like this is a pretty big indication that Mark was written first, but there's, but more than that, there's also uh, differences in how Jesus is presented because in Matthew, you've got Jesus being a lot more powerful than Mark. And I feel like you would need to explain like, why, why does a later writer make Jesus less powerful? Like, it, I guess it doesn't make sense to go from more powerful Jesus to less powerful Jesus like uh, that, that particular situation doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And uh, just as an example, like uh, geez, uh, there's this one part, which y'all will probably know the chapter and verse, but um, there's this one part in Mark where uh, Jesus goes to a town, but he can't do any miracles there because people don't believe or whatever like that. So, but, but it's very clear that Jesus can't do any miracles there, but in later gospels, Matthew included, it, it's, it's written as uh, Jesus chooses not to do any miracles there. Uh, and, and, and in that way, Jesus is a bit more powerful in that he's not restricted from it. He just, chooses like of his own volition not to do any miracles there so it kind of it, it seems to me like on top of verbatim copies from one one gospel to another you also have how jesus is presented okay we didn't really talk about the back and forth during q a but maybe you can work it in uh down the line david if you have anything to come back on that with uh here is a super chat from flame for truth, which says, what makes it likely Mark has a low Christology? You want me to hit that one first? Well, or is that I'm not sure who, who should hit that. You want to take it first, John? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I mean, the, the reason why I consider Mark to be low Christology um, is because of the, the fact that it's more of an adoptionist gospel. Mark doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. In fact, um, it's, it's commonly thought in, in the scholarly uh, or the academic community that when Jesus is baptized, uh, he's pulled out of the water and then the, the uh, Holy Spirit or the, the Spirit uh, it descends upon him and actually sort of um, inhabits uh, his body at that point. And so like that, that's a very adoptionist way. It's uh, the, the adoptionist way is, is um, a good segue from how the Jews considered sons of God, because the, the uh, Jewish Kings and, and the rulers, they were anointed and they therefore became sons of God at that point in, in a similar fashion with Jesus being baptized. He's, baptized and then dubbed the son of God at that point. So it doesn't seem like Mark knows anything about Jesus being the son of God prior to that point. He only becomes the son of God after that point. And this seems like a nice segue from Jewish belief into the more Christian belief. David. I mean, the arguments that are given for why Mark allegedly has a lower Christology is he allegedly portrays Jesus with less power and, you know, less reverence than uh, he has in the other Gospels. Uh, 
John actually gave an example of this uh, before that uh, people will commonly use uh, with, you know, Jesus allegedly being unable to perform miracles because of people's unbelief. Uh, in my opinion, this is just a very clear misreading of, you know, Mark. Uh, it's very obvious in Mark's gospel that Mark, the author of Mark, believes that Jesus has uh, the power to um, to heal people, to do miracles, or to refrain from doing it. Uh, I feel like you can only get the idea that Jesus literally was unable to do a miracle here because of people's unbelief, as though their unbelief in some way gave him the power to do these miracles, uh, at the expense of failing to read absolutely everything else in Mark's gospel. So I do not agree that Mark has a low Christology, but those are kind of the stock arguments that are given against it. Okay, here's yeah. Go ahead, John. Well, maybe sorry. You can I just it. wanted. I, go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. Well, I, I just real quick. I you could uh, most Bible verses if if you know kind of what what it says, you can look them up through Google or whatever whatever search engine. But this is Mark six five. Um, it literally says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. So it literally says he could not do any miracles there. Uh, so well, moderators I don't know privilege. How that's a misreading. Moderators privilege yeah. here. If you guys want to talk about that for a second, feel free. I'll just say the commentators that uh, I have read on this say that, uh, that it, it's legitimate to interpret this passage as saying that um, Jesus uh, has chosen to respond to people's um faith with miracles. And so it says because there was, uh, you know, so little faith in this town, that's why he could not do the miracles here. Uh, you could say that, um, you know, Mark was being careless here and giving the impression off that Jesus literally was unable to do that, because I agree with you, that is literally what it says. Uh, but I really don't think that uh, if we had asked the author of Mark, wait, do you think that Jesus had an inability to do this? I really don't think based on the rest of his gospel, he would have said, oh, Jesus was literally unable to do this. He just uh, would have said, no, no, what I meant there was that Jesus had chosen to respond to uh, people's faith in healing and that these people here were not exercising the faith. And so because of that, he could not um, do many great works there. Uh, that's how I read the passage. Okay, well, um, let's just move on. Maybe we can work in more uh, more interactions as we go because the next one is similar, but it's a super chat. I want to make sure I get it in here. Paul has a high Christology and is primary. Why? Uh, well, I mean, I, I I don't know why. I mean, I think that uh, obviously I have my own ideas about, you know, how Paul thought about Jesus. Uh, but, I mean... It, Paul has a, a, a very specific experience with Jesus and, and that is, you know, as a uh, resurrected uh, individual, I guess. Uh, so, I mean, I, I feel like it, it, it pro considering that Paul never talks about Jesus's time on earth. Um, if, if he were on earth, uh, I, I feel like him specifically only talking about Jesus as a celestial figure and the, uh, and, and the way that he talks about Jesus being a separate uh, celestial entity from God, um, I, I feel like, you know, that meshes pretty well with how Jews thought about, you know, uh, the angels in heaven, uh, other celestial figures, and, and God in general. So uh, I, I feel like Paul represents a nice segue between Jewish ideas and this new Christian idea about the Messiah and uh, the 
the Messiah being a celestial figure that's revealed through visions and scriptures, um, I think it's only natural to have that kind of outlook on it. And it's only later that it's necessary for these public, you know, earthly stories to come about, about Jesus. David. Yeah. I mean, obviously I disagree that uh, Paul never speaks about Jesus on earth, but um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really want to, I don't want to spend the whole uh, debate arguing about that point, which is kind of why I chose to focus on the Gospels. Um, But what I do think is irrelevant about Paul having a high Christology is that this challenges the idea that uh, this high Christology, this idea of Jesus as God or as a divine being, that this is something that evolved gradually over time. Uh, I think uh, that if we take Paul as being our earliest source about Jesus, and I personally disagree. I think um, Paul actually shows familiarity with uh, Matthew's gospel at some points, but that, that, that's a debate for another day. Um, I think uh, that this challenges the idea that, oh, well, look, we can track this evolution of, uh, you know, Christology growing from Mark to Matthew to Luke, where he's God all the way in John. Uh, if he's God in Paul, then that that just shoots that idea down. Okay, um, I actually have two questions here from Kevin, and Kevin is also a YouTuber and a friend of our channel, and uh, he, he gave a super chat, but just to say thanks, because he had asked two or three questions. Here's one for David. Are you familiar with the taxation episode, quote-unquote, as a tool to date Mark to post 70 AD? I assume you reject this later dating. Interested in your thoughts. Does that sound familiar to you, David? Uh, I might be familiar with it, but I'll have to admit that the term taxation episode, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what he's referring to there. Uh, I don't actually have a problem with Mark being later than uh, 70 AD. That's not when I would place it, but it, it wouldn't be like hugely problematic from my perspective uh, if Mark did date to after 80, 70. Uh, but no, I have to be honest to say I'm not familiar, at least with that term that he's using. Kevin has another question for you, but John, do you want to say anything about that? Uh, no, I mean, I feel like Mark uh, dating to between 65 and like 72 uh, uh, CE is, is a good dating uh, for Mark considering the content of Mark. Okay. And another one for David here, Justin Martyr and Ignatius both treat the gospels um, anonymously. Do you take that them into account when you say no sources are anonymous? Well, I'd be interested on uh, what what uh, quotation he's talking about from Ignatius there. When it comes to Justin Martyr, I don't think he does treat them anonymously. He does not state the names of them, but he does refer to them as, uh, the, if I remember correctly, the, the memoirs of the uh, apostles and their followers or the apostles and their disciples, something like that. So it, it does seem that they are known to him. He just doesn't explicitly state the names uh, in, uh, in his forget if that's the dialogue with Trifo or First Apology. But in any case, he doesn't like say that they are anonymous. He just doesn't say the names. And there's a big difference between not saying the author of a work and treating it as anonymous. John? I mean, I feel like if you don't say who the author was, then you're treating it anonymously. But um, maybe I'm just too literal. <clears throat> that's all I got to say about that. Okay, everything New Testament. Uh, so they tried to send a super chat, so thank you for trying. Maybe it came through, but here it is anyway. If the earliest proclamation about Jesus' resurrection was altered, wouldn't first-generation Christians object, uh, object to them since they would have problems with any difference in the content of their belief? If the earliest proclamation about Jesus' resurrection was altered, 
Wouldn't first generation Christians object? Yeah. So this must be a question for John. Yeah. Uh, kind of seems like it. Uh, I don't know. Like the earliest proclamation about Jesus's resurrection was Paul. Paul, I, I don't recall anywhere that Paul was altered. Uh, now, of course, uh, could be talking about the Gospels and how each uh, subsequent Gospel author was trying to correct the previous Gospel author. But um, it, you, like, there, there's a there's a long like there's a tradition in in these Gospel authorships, and they were written for specific communities. So it's uh, it, they wouldn't necessarily have problems with how the Gospels like changed over time because each community had their own specific gospel stories and like marcion in the late second century he he pretty much just put together the popular the four popular ones and even matthew and and luke seem to be like a uh, amalgam of maybe four different communities uh and i get that from the uh genealogies that you see uh in both of them um and uh, it, it combined with a virgin birth uh, idea. Um, so it, it just, it kind of seems like you had multiple different communities had, that had different ideas about it. And so each community would be fine with their particular belief about, you know, the, the story of Jesus. I have one more super chat and it's a special one. So I'm going to save it for last, even though I typically put those first and you'll see why. But uh, let's go ahead and can you, have you got time for three more questions? Normal questions, guys. Sure. Okay. This is from Command the Raven says, how does Godless Engineer answer the unanimous testimony of the external evidence of gospel authors attributed to them? Uh, well, I don't know what external, uh, external unanimous testimony other than, uh, mid, uh, mentioning like the Papias, the Irenaeus, the Ignatiuses, and all this other stuff. Um, I, the, what I would have to say about those is that they come about like a century after Jesus supposedly, uh, died. And, uh, I know a little bit less than that for when the gospels were written. So, I mean, uh, you're talking about people that are so far removed from when the gospels were written and uh, who began circulating these gospels that I don't feel like there's any way that they could know, you know, who actually wrote them considering that the titles were only affixed much later to the gospel accounts and the need for uh, differentiating the gospel accounts only came when a more monolithic version of Christianity started to form. David? Well, I'll just say we never got any evidence that the titles were affixed later. As I said, we don't actually possess any of the anonymous copies. Uh, and I think it's very clear how they would have known this. Uh, Papias directly tells us that he got his information from John the Elder. And again, I would be happy to argue that that's the same as John the Apostle. Uh, in the case of Irenaeus, we know where he got his information from as well. Irenaeus uh, tells us in a, a letter that he wrote uh, that he got his information from Polycarp, who had directly relayed to him what uh, the Apostle John had told him. So we're getting this information from the Apostle John himself, and at least the case of Irenaeus and Papias, who are our two earliest sources um, that are uh, mentioning the names on the Gospels. Uh, there are also reasons for trusting the reliability of the other um, patristics, but I, I won't get into that here. But I, I will I will just say before we move on that Polycarp doesn't say that he was 
a, a student of, of the apostle John. Uh, that's only a, like, it, it's only, who was it? Irenaeus that claims that Polycarp was Polycarp. We don't have any evidence that Polycarp actually was from Polycarp himself. I don't know what's wrong with evidence from one of his students, but okay. All right. Um, this is one that apparently is somebody you know, David. Question for David, Devil's Advocate. What do you make of the parallels Dale Allison draws on to undermine the case for the resurrection? He knows I know, but still. Uh, I mean, I think he's talking about like rainbow bodies and things here. And I'll say I probably haven't uh, read Dale Allison's particular objections to the resurrection as closely as I should have. And I do know Joshua. He's, he's definitely uh, studied Dale Allison's particular uh, objections more closely than I have. Uh, from what I understand, um, Allison uh, doesn't, he's not an epistemologist, so he makes a lot of probability errors here. And uh, suffice to say, from what I understand, rainbow bodies and things are just not evidentially on par with the sort of testimonial evidence that we have for the resurrection of Jesus. Do you have anything you want to add to that, John? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, here's one for you, John. What are you, and I know okay. this is probably your favorite question to get as a as a, a non-Christian, but Barbie Q says, "What evidence would be enough to convince you that someone resurrected two thousand plus years ago?" That is a really good question um, because I know a lot of people think that atheists can't be swayed, but um, I can't really tell you what the evidence would look like. Um, but uh, I. I definitely know that I'm not ruling out like the conclusion that Jesus bodily resurrected. Um, I think that it's incredibly difficult because of the nature of the event. And that would require substantial uh, uh, evidence in order to prove it. And I feel like the state of the evidence now is uh, just not up, uh, up to overcoming that prior probability. So while I can't tell you what it would look like, um, I, I feel, I feel like if, if the evidence did exist, it could easily overcome the prior probability. David, do you want to speak to John's, uh, standards here? Um, well, I mean, he didn't, he didn't get real precise on it. Um, but, uh, I mean, fundamentally, uh, you know, uh, whether kind of it's easy to lay out, you know, these sorts of, uh, hypothetical, here's what it would take to you know, convince me. But uh, at the end of the day, I think atheists and skeptics still have to deal with the evidence that you know we actually have, even if it doesn't fulfill whatever idealized standards they might um, want to be fulfilled. That, that doesn't actually um, do anything to the evidence that's actually there, and that still needs to be accounted for. Well, I, I want to close. Uh, I'll say a few words to you, but but first, there's a special person here that gave a super chat, special in the sense that they have a special relationship with someone on the screen, and it's not David and it's not me. Caitlin Chloe says, thanks for hosting Trinity Radio and to David and GE. It's important to have amicable conversations about these things, and you all set a good example. I'm certainly glad that you felt that way, Caitlin. I really, I really am. And um, I think this is your wife, right, GE? It is. Yes, yeah. Casey, she's right here. I'm looking at her. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of adds another dimension to it, that as I've been seeing her interact in the live chat, she's like just off screen. But anyway, we're glad that you were here, uh, Caitlin. And uh, that is true. We do want to, to model 
um, friendly interactions like that. But guys, I really have enjoyed this so much. I really, really have. Thanks for so much. But I, I want to say this too, because John reached out to me sometime last week saying, yeah, I'm trying to put together a resurrection debate. Is there anybody you recommended? I recommended uh, David. And in fact, I said, but if you, if, you, if you end up not debating David, I'd love to host that debate on my channel. And John was good enough to just say, well, then let's just do it. And I really, really do appreciate that, John. That was very uh, benevolent of you. And David, thanks for coming on, man. I feel like you guys just both uh, were, were so good about things and easy to work with. And then I really enjoyed the discussion. This has just been great. Is there anything either of you want to say on the way out? Uh, David, maybe you first. Anything you want to get off your chest? Yeah, I'll just say it was. Uh, this is my first time in particular debating this uh, exact topic. It, it did come up sort of in another debate that I had. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the first time I've had a titled debate on this topic. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, so, yeah, thanks for being a good sparring partner, uh, John. Uh, and I would just like to say thank you, uh, David, for having the debate with me. Uh, I know that there was a little bit of pushback from a few people that that uh, don't really like me in, in the various social media posts that, that were put up uh, announcing the debate. But um, I'm really happy that we were able to sort of uh, talk things out. And I know that we really didn't cover uh, the, the entire breadth of this topic because it's it is it is a rather large topic. Um, but I, I just. Uh, you know, I don't expect people to be swayed by my position or, or, or David's position. Uh, I just hope that, you know, people, you know, can uh, uh, critically consider, you know, what they believe and why they believe it. And uh, if I've done, if this, if this has done that, then I, I feel like it's very valuable. And I feel like it's been very valuable just from a standpoint of, you know, having nice, calm, reasonable conversations. And, uh, I know that I can get really uh, excited or, uh, jump at, you know, certain things. So, uh, I, I just, I appreciate, you know, uh, the patience that both of us, uh, were going through in this debate. So. Yeah, I didn't really see any aggression at all. And I, I appreciated how it went and guys, this has been great. And to the rest <laughs> of you, listen, their, uh, links to their channels are in the description. You feel free to check those out. And if you like the sort of thing that they do on their channels, go ahead and subscribe. I know that they'll appreciate that. And folks, this has been fun. We'll do more of this again, and we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.